Thanks for listening to The Chapel Podcast. At The Chapel Church, our passion is to share the hope of Jesus to individuals, the community, and the world. Listen in as Pastor Brandon Joyner shares an encouraging and challenging message from God's Word. In his autobiography, Benjamin Franklin tells of a time in which he wanted to encourage the people of Philadelphia. Many of you know from history, Benjamin Franklin was quite the inventive man. He was a, he was a critical thinker. And so he wanted to try to convince the people in the town of Philadelphia, the city of Philadelphia, to light their streets with lanterns so that people can have the ability to be able to see. They didn't have streetlights back then, and so it was difficult for them to get from place to place. Well, no one adhered to that. No one listened to his advice, and so Benjamin Franklin thought it would be appropriate for him to set up his own lantern, and so he grabbed a lantern and cleaned it all up. He put a, he put a long rod at the front of his door towards the, going towards the end of his driveway, and he lit a lantern, and so there was light all around his home. And people realized as they were walking that right around Benjamin Franklin's home, they could see. They weren't tripping over the cobblestones, and they weren't hitting things that they couldn't see if they were in the dark. And so people quickly realized that through his example, that this was something that they ought to do, and people began to light their lights along the streets of Philadelphia, hence the streetlights were born. Well, we see through, through this example, and you've probably experienced this yourself, it is a lot more powerful for us to live our life through example for people to follow than for us just to merely say words. Uh, Samuel Johnson once wrote this. He said, example is always more effective than teaching. Albert Schweitzer said, example is not the main thing in influencing others. It is the only thing. Children become like parents, churches become like pastors, students become like their teachers, all because of the power of example, and there be maybe no greater power on earth to change the behavior of others than living by example. The Apostle Paul tells us, as he begins this new chapter in Ephesians chapter 5, he commands us, matter of fact, to be imitators of God. He's he's stressing as Christians the importance of leading by example. In other words, we follow the example of God through our living imitation of God, and therefore others will be impacted by the hope of the gospel. So take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5 as we continue our journey together through the book of Ephesians. We're going to be looking at the first seven verses there of Ephesians chapter 5, just a way of recap. The Apostle Paul writes this letter to the Christians within Ephesus to focus on this doctrine of salvation, this subject, for that matter, of salvation. Within the first three chapters of Ephesians, he focuses on this is what salvation is. That's what he answers. This is all the doctrinal implications of your salvation because you've been saved by Christ. You're therefore justified. You're redeemed. And this is what it means for you. That's the first three chapters, Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. As you go into chapter 4, 5, and 6, he then takes that question and he builds upon that by really asking, because you're saved, this is how you ought to live regarding your salvation. It's the practical side of this subject of salvation. So far, we've taken uh, the past several weeks, I know we kind of broke it up a little bit with different special services and such, but we took the time to look at Ephesians chapter 4. He starts off in Ephesians chapter 4 by focusing on this subject of unity. The church must be or is unified underneath the body of Christ, so therefore it must act like this. Loving one another, we talked about that in Oscar's class this morning. You're unified through the love that you have or with the love that you have for one another because of Christ. He then transitions throughout that chapter in Ephesians chapter 4 and focuses on certain gifts, uh, pastors, evangelists, teachers, and, and other speaking gifts, more or less, that are given to the church for the purpose of the edification and the equipping of the saints. That's what he focuses on, really kind of in the middle part 
of Ephesians chapter 4. And then he closes out with this put off, put on principle. He talks about what it looks like to put off the flesh and put on the spirit more or less by saying yes to the spirit, saying no to the flesh. And then he rounds that out in Ephesians chapter 4 towards the end by giving the practical implications of what that looks like. You put away from you covetousness and greediness and lying and all of these things and you put on truth. You put on working with your hands and you put on this Christian testimony. That's what putting on the spirit looks like. But now he transitions into chapter 5, and he focuses now on the different aspects of the Christian walk. In verses 1 through 7 that we'll look at this morning, the Apostle Paul commands the Christians to walk in love. In verses 8 through 14, he commands the Christians to walk in light. And in verses 15 through 21, he commands the Christians to walk in wisdom. Beginning in verse 22, and really carrying into the beginning of Ephesians chapter 6, Paul shifts gears to focus on the two main relationships that people face on a day-to-day basis. Your relationship with your family. He talks about how children ought to treat their mom and dad, and how mom and dads ought to treat each other as well as treat their children. And then he focuses on the relationship with the work, within the workplace, your uh, employee-employer relationship. But this morning, we are going to focus on that first section there, and that's this command to walk in love. Love is a major theme throughout the New Testament. In fact, love is one of the primary means in which we reveal our genuine salvation to other people. The scriptures tell us that love is the foundation of our salvation. 1 John chapter 4, verse 19 says we love him. We talked about this on Wednesday. We love him, meaning the love that we have for the Lord. And you can underline, because he first loved us. How awesome is it to know the reality that we have in the Lord? We don't love him out of our own ambition, more or less, or out of our own, like we didn't think when we were born to just automatically love the Lord. We love the Lord because He first loved us. The Bible talks about the drawing of the Holy Spirit. That's how all of us came to the Lord. We were first drawn by the Holy Spirit. We felt that tug. There's something in my life that needs to change. And then we received Christ as our Savior. We loved Him because Christ first loved us. And it's through the love that we have because of Christ that we love other people. The reason why we have the capability to love God and others is because Christ first loved us. God took the initiative and the relationship by sending his only begotten son into the world. And based upon that motivation of love, he sacrificed himself on our behalf. And it's because of Jesus, Christians have the ability to love others and love the Lord with a supernatural, genuine type of love. Since love is his primary motivation for our salvation, the scriptures are filled with this command for Christians to love others for the sake of the gospel. As Oscar mentioned this morning to our life group class, uh, we looked at the scriptures in which it says to love others, and that's really the foundation for the unity within the church. And we look at other verses like love covers a multitude of sins. It's not talking about we love someone to the point where if they are living in sin, we don't address it. It doesn't say that. Love covering a multitude of sins is not talking about sinfulness per se. It's talking about the faults of the other person. And so we come into the body of Christ and we see somebody that we may not naturally prefer. We may have a personality that just naturally kind of rubs us the wrong way. Love covers over that so we can treat them with Christ-like love. It's the only way we're going to be unified within the body of Christ. 
And so the Apostle Paul, along with the other apostles, John being another uh, major one of those, stresses this importance of loving one another. Matthew chapter 22, verses 37 through 39, records the words of Jesus. Jesus said to the lawyer who's saying, you know, what does it mean to love and love your neighbor? He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your soul, and with all of your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And then after that, the second one is like this, you shall love your neighbors as yourself. So we pause there. That's the command. But then Jesus adds this in verse 40. You see it up there on your screen. He says, on these two commandments, love God and love others, hang all of the law of the prophets. So what does that mean? If you were to look at every single command, let's just take the 10 commandments, for example. We've shared this in church before. And you were to divide up all of the 10 commandments, you could actually put them in two different categories. One category is you will obey these commandments, you will follow these commandments if you love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your mind, with all of your soul. If you love the Lord, then you will keep the Sabbath day holy. You will make God your number one priority in your life. You won't blaspheme His name because you love Him with respect. Okay, so we don't walk around and we don't say God in a trifle way. If you were to take those commandments, you could put that in that category, and then you look at the other commandments, right? Do not, commit, uh, do not covet uh, your, 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 your neighbor's wife. Don't covet in general. Do not steal. Do not kill. All of these other things fall in the category of what? Love your neighbor as yourself. And so that's what Jesus means by all of the law of the prophets can hang on those two commandments. And so bottom line, love is an absolutely tremendous deal when it comes to our life as a Christian. We love the Lord with all of our heart, mind, and soul. And so if love is the primary means for both salvation as well as evidence of our genuine salvation, how can we, from a practical standpoint, walk in love? Do we go around every day and touch people on the shoulder and just say, I love you? That's weird. Okay. Is that what it means to walk in love? Do we just walk around and just tell people that we love them? What does it mean in a practical sense to walk in love, even towards those whom we naturally would not agree with? That is exactly what the Apostle Paul begins to describe here in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. Through our time together this morning, what we're going to do is examine this, this walk to love, which is the title of our message. We will discover its principle when it comes to living out our faith in a world that so desperately needs Jesus. And we're going to examine the example that is set before us through Jesus Christ. And what the Apostle Paul does is he first begins this this section here with this command, be imitators of God. This is the pattern whom we are supposed to, we ought to, we must set our life after. This is true north, if you will, when it comes to this moral compass in which we are to guide our life. You talk about somebody say he's got a true north compass. It's like everything seems to kind of match up to something. And this goes back to, and I'm sure that, um, I'm sure Sean has talked about this with his apologetics uh, classes as well. When it comes to this subject of morality, why do we know a difference between right and wrong? It's not because somebody said that's right and wrong. It's because it's based upon something or someone, and that is the morality or the moral code that Jesus lays out. And so the Apostle Paul says, be imitators of God. So everything in your life, your love, your, your thought life, your, your conversation, your words, everything must match with the imitation of who God is. So that gives us our first point here this morning. If we're going to walk in love, we must understand that God's holiness is our standard. God's holiness is our standard. It's not church tradition. It's not works. It's not anything else but the holiness of God. 
The Apostle Paul says in verse 1, Therefore be imitators of God as dear children. That word imitate in the original Greek means to act like. In the example that he gives here, it's like a children or a child for that matter acting like their mom and dad. It's natural for a child that lives with their mom and dad, that talks with their mom and dad, that um, that grows up underneath the house of their mom and dad, that's underneath the constant teaching and influence of their mom and dad, to act like their mom and dad. What if we took that in a spiritual standpoint? I know that we don't physically live in the presence of God as far as God, be Jesus Christ being alive on earth. I know that, but we have something far greater than that. It's the presence of the Holy Spirit as Christians. What if we communicated with God to the point and, and, and had conversed with God and prayed with God and trusted God and listened to God to the point where we literally started acting like the very character of God? Now, why God? There's not everything that we can imitate that's God's. We can't be all present. We can't be all-powerful. We can't be all-knowing. That's impossible for us because that would, we're not God. But we can be self-sacrificing. We can be forgiving. And we can love like God loves. And that's what the Apostle Paul tells us to do here. By using this word, therefore, though, at the beginning of verse 1, what Paul is doing is he's connecting this command with the previous instructions. We've said this before in church. Whenever you see the word, therefore, you must ask, what is it there for? So what the Apostle Paul is doing is he's connecting what he closes out chapter 4 with, with the command to be imitators of God. Well, you can look back at chapter 4. What does the Apostle Paul say throughout that chapter? Paul says, we do not lie. We should not sinfully respond in anger. We do not steal. We do not speak corrupt communication. We be controlled by bitterness. We cannot be controlled by bitterness, anger, wrath, clamor, evil speaking. He says, rather than do these things at the end of chapter 4, Paul says that we must forgive others and act in tender loving care towards other people. All of these negative characteristics describe the world and the positive characteristics describe the character of God. Going into chapter five, Paul says, therefore, what? Be imitators of God. Don't do these things, but imitate the character of God. What Paul says in verse one is that God is our standard of holiness. One of the most beautiful aspects about Christianity that you will not see in any other religion is that God did not just command us to be like him, he sent his son to show us what it looks like to be like God. You can read a biography of what Jesus did and what he thought and what he said. It's called the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is literally a biography of the ministry of Jesus Christ. And so if you were to read through those and study through those, and I would encourage everyone to do that at least uh, a portion of their year, to use that as part of their devotions, what did Jesus look like? Or what did he act like? What did he say when he was faced with this situation of difficult people? How did he respond when he was faced with unrighteous type of sin? If that's how Jesus responded, then that's how I ought to respond because Jesus Christ is the perfect imitation of God because Jesus is God. There is a popular slogan that has kind of been used and abused over the years, but many of you remember it, right? WWJD. I don't mean to be trite in saying that because I think it has been overused, but that's a pretty easy thing to remember when it comes to being a tool of how we should respond. What would Jesus do in this situation? John says in John chapter 1, verse 18, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. This is what God, or who, or how God acts like. It is how Jesus acts with his people. So the Apostle Paul says here to be imitators of God, and then going into verse 2, he gives the specifics of that command. He says to walk in love. 
He says, be imitators of God, but specifically in doing that, child, walk in love. Walk in love. Which leads us to our second point here this morning, and that is Christ's example or his sacrifice is the model of how we ought to walk in love. God is the standard of holiness. Christ's example, his sacrifice, is the model of how we ought to walk in love. Look at verse 2. It says, walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God, a sweet-smelling aroma. The way in which we are to walk in love is in the same self-sacrificial way in which Christ gave himself for us. Another thing we talked about this morning in our life group is selfless type of love. Self-sacrificial type of love is the model to the command. What Jesus says here, what Paul says here through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is that this command is telling us to put into action the command that's laid before us. Be imitators of God, okay, that's a command. Walk in love, it's another command. And then he says, just as Jesus sacrificed himself for us, that's how you ought to treat other people as well. I'm at fault with this. I try not to be through the power of the Holy Spirit, but I think we all can get into this habit of coming to church and soaking in the word. I've had people talk to me about this. Is I love this speaker, and, and they give these wonderful spiritual concepts and all of these things, which is great. Half the time they don't know what he's saying, but it's great. Study out the doctrine, and we ought to do that. We are commanded to do that, but sometimes we can get caught up in just doing that and studying and meditating that we fail to apply what we've studied and meditated upon. And we can actually look at this studying the Word of God and reading all of these books and digging down deep into the doctrine of things that, I'm going to be honest with you, we're not going to fully understand on this side of eternity as a cop-out to really doing what the Bible says for us to do. I've counseled people like that. Pastor Brandon, I really want you to take, and I'm always growing in my preaching, I seek to do that, but I really want you to pull out these deep, doctrinal, intricate details from these authors and these other pastors that still don't know what they're talking about fully because it's a concept that we're not going to fully understand, and I want you to dive on that. And I say, praise the Lord, I'm going to do the best I can, but I also want us to understand that we need to practically apply what we're reading as well and not just sit around the coffee shop and talk about it all the time. This is why Jesus Christ here gives us the example. The Apostle Paul says, listen, do what he did. One commentator says this, meditation is happy. It's holy. It's a profitable engagement. It will instruct us, strengthen us, comfort us, inspire our hearts, and make our souls steadfast. But we may not stop at meditation. We must go on to the imitation of the character of God. We must let our spiritual life not only bud and blossom and devote thought, but let it bring forth fruit in holy action. We must not be satisfied with feeding the soul by meditation, but rise up from the banquet and use the strength that we have gained sitting at the feet of Jesus must be succeeded by following the footsteps of Jesus. What a beautiful way to help us understand that we have to apply what the Word of God says. The point that Paul is making in verse 2 is comparing this command with walk in love with this sacrifice of Jesus uh, so that our love for others is more than just words, but an action takes place. But look at what he says here. He says that Jesus' sacrifice was an offering and a sacrifice to God for what? A sweet-smelling aroma. Well, what does that mean? If you were to go back to the Old Testament, specifically in Leviticus, and you were to do a study through Leviticus, you'll see that phrase, sweet-smelling aroma, 16 different times throughout the book of Leviticus. 
And it's not in reference to the actual smell of the sacrifice itself, right? burning meat. He's not talking about the burning meat itself as being a sweet smell. He's talking about the heart behind the sacrifice and the fact that it was a, at that point, limited atonement and a, 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 not a full, complete atonement because we know Jesus Christ was that. And it was therefore satisfying and pleasing to God. And so therefore he forgave the people of their sins. That sacrifice uh, forgave them more or less of their sins. And then you move into Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ giving his, giving his entire body, his entire being to, to the Lord, uh, to, to his Father on the cross. And he died on our behalf. The Bible says that it was a sweet smelling aroma to the Father. It satisfied the Father in what Jesus had done. Therefore we can be redeemed. And so if you were to take that thought, being the self-sacrificing way in which Jesus Christ sacrificed himself, and that was pleasing to the Lord, what Paul is saying is that your sacrificial love for other people and that sacrifice of yourself for the benefit of other people is what? It's a sweet-smelling aroma before the Lord. The Bible tells us, Paul tells us multiple times, that we have to sacrifice ourselves on a daily basis. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. We are to yield up our bodies as instruments of righteousness, sacrificing ourselves for the work of the Lord. As we do so in this walk of love, the Apostle Paul tells us that this is a sweet-smelling aroma to the Lord. He is pleased in that type of sacrifice. And so God's standard is our holiness. We move into this, this model being Christ's sacrifice is the model and the way we are to love. We are to love in the same way that Christ sacrificed himself on our behalf in a selfless way. But we move into the third point here, and that is this when it comes to walking in love. Praise is the communication of our walking in love. Praise is the communication. We have the standard of God that's set before us, and that's His holiness. We sacrifice ourselves on a daily basis for the betterment of other people, living out selfless love. And then our conversation that takes place is praise. It's not one of complaining, but the Apostle Paul actually hits it a little bit deeper here in the next section of verses. He says in verses 3 through 4, he says, but fornication, all cleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as it is fitting for saints, neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. Paul begins now with this lifestyle. He goes from the words or, or, and then he transitions into words. He's talking about the lifestyle. He says he begins with these types of sexual sins. He uses this word fornication and uncleanness, and both of them come from this Greek word porneia, which is where we get, you know, pornography from. It is any type, any type of sexual sin, both in action and in thought. He's not just talking about adultery. He's saying fornication, which is everything. Looking at, talking about it, participating in it physically, or thinking about it, the Apostle Paul says, don't even let it be named among you. Reject it. See, we've talked about this at the beginning of Ephesians, but the context within what he's writing this letter to in the state of Ephesus here at that particular time was a big deal when it came to these words here. Ephesus, you can look this up in history, was the home place of the temple of Diana. Diana being the goddess of fertility in the Greek culture, the Greek uh, religion. Within the temple of Diana, being the goddess of fertility, the goddess of childbirth, part of the worshiping process is worshipers would go into the temple, they would do incense and all these things, but they would also participate in illicit acts with temple prostitutes. It was part of their way of worshiping. 
And praise the Lord, I don't know of any kind of under, uh, religion here within the United States that does that on a daily basis. And so the sin, the gross immorality was blatantly in front of the believer's face. The Apostle Paul says, don't even hint around it. Get rid of it. In addition to sexual immorality, the Apostle Paul addresses this greediness. This Greek word for covetousness comes from the word that refers to consuming desire to possess more than other people. The foundational issue with both sexual immorality and covetousness is this. It's the problem of idolatry. See, he's not focused on itself, the, the fornication act, which is, which is sinful, have you ever wondered why the Lord makes such a big deal about marriage and the, the marriage relationship between a man and a woman and, and sexual immorality? Why does it seem like that, like the, the big sin that he talks about all throughout Scripture? Because that is an image in and of itself of our relationship that we have with the Lord. And so what the Apostle Paul is saying here is don't let it be named among you. And then he says, don't let greediness and covetousness be named among you. He highlights those two things because the root of all of those issues is idolatry of the heart. Oftentimes why we sin is not just the sin in and of itself that's wrong. It's, it's a manifestation of what's going on here within our own heart. What we're saying is, God, you're not enough for me. I desire X, Y, and Z, another spouse, or I desire this, and it's a violation of what you command in your scriptures. I desire this God more than I desire you, which is why I'm willing to sin and not follow through with your commands. The Apostle Paul is really hitting it down. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, it says, Fornication, uncleanness, passions, evil desires, and covetousness is at its foundation idolatry. There's a popular song that came out in the late 80s by Roxette called Listen to Your Heart. It's a song about a young lady that is having trouble with love. The chorus goes, listen to your heart when he's calling for you. Listen to your heart. There's nothing else that you can do. I don't know where you're going. And some of you are singing in your head right now. And I don't know why, but listen to your heart before you tell him goodbye. And that is the worst possible advice that you could give to anyone. Listen to your heart. Why? Because Jeremiah chapter 17 verse 9 says that our heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Now follow with me here. You listening to your heart, what the Apostle Paul says is that when you do listen to your heart, this is the end result of that. Fornication, sexual immorality, covetousness, greediness, all these sinful desires is a result of when we do listen to our heart and reject God. So, so he says, rather than be a part of these things, he says, uh, he, 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 then he focuses on the words in verse 4. He says, filthiness, foolish talking, and coarse jesting. Okay, now it's talking about the words. It goes from the lifestyle to the words. All of these descriptors describe any speech that is obscene, degrading, foolish, dirty, immoral, even sometimes when it's joking around with the guys or whatever. It gets into that line of like coarse jesting that we should not be a part of. This throws out any jokes that are suggestive in nature in any way, any innuendo of any way, and anything that does not positively build up the image of God. Even if it's between a husband and a wife. If it doesn't build them up to be more like Christ, don't say it. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29. You can underline it. Apostle Paul says, Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for the necessary use of edification, that it what? May impart grace to to the hearers. That grace is the tool in which we use to build one another up. 
And so when we're communicating with one another, it should be to help us become more like Christ. If it's a joke or a coarse uh, joke or jesting in any way that would degrade the beautiful, perfect image in which God has created us to be like, then it should not be a part of our life. And that's what the Apostle Paul says here. But he says, rather than all these things, he says, what? Give thanks. Give thanks. That's part of following the will of the Lord. It's part of walking in love is rather than tearing other people down, you give thanks. Thanks. The Apostle Paul says that we must look at our life and our speech through the lens of the gospel. Everything working out for our good, therefore we praise God, even if life utterly is terrible right now. We praise the Lord for it. 1 John chapter 4, verses 17 through 18 says, Love has been perfected among us in this, that we have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, there, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. What is Jesus saying here? What is the Apostle John saying here? Is that love is being perfected in us, will give us boldness and confidence to follow the will of the Lord. But we can't have love perfected in our hearts if we're going around and saying things and doing things and that would not match up with the character of God. We praise the Lord. We acknowledge for Him for who He is, and that is a sovereign God. And so that's the third aspect of walking in love. It has to transform our speech. But number four, finally, the final point that Paul makes when it comes to this command of walking in love is the fact that our lifestyle is the evidence of our love for the Lord. Number four, lifestyle is the evidence. Look at verses 6 and 7. He says, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. The Apostle Paul is warning the believers against this temptation of going back to their previous lifestyle. He's encouraged by them following the Lord and going away from their old lives, but he also knows that there's a temptation from others promising certain things that, that, that when it comes to living a life without God and therefore going back to that old lifestyle. The Apostle Paul says, listen, listen, do not be partakers with those that have empty words. Then empty words means two different things here. First off, it means those that pretend to be followers of Christ that are not. They're trying to justify their own sin. They're trying to justify why they choose to do certain things when it doesn't match up with God. Isn't it always funny that people like, try to justify it to you as to why they're sinning, as if like, you're the one that needs to be convinced, when in reality, we have no, like, like, we just are showing you what God's Word says. Why aren't you trying to convince God that what you're doing is sinful? Because really, deep down inside, people know that what they're doing isn't right. That's what the Apostle Paul means by empty words. And in addition to that, it's also those that uh, try to tempt you to go down the route of sinfulness and not the route of God. There's temptations that come even within the church of those that try to get you to participate in things that you know would not please God. The Apostle Paul says, do not let that be a part of any of your life. Matthew chapter 7, Jesus Christ talks about those that try to pretend to be followers of Christ that aren't. Uh, Matthew, or Jesus says, you will know them by their fruits. Jesus then continues with these thought-provoking questions. He says, do men gather grapes from thorn bushes uh, or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. 
A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits, ye shall know them. Going back to what the Apostle Paul says in verse 6, Paul says, Let no one deceive you with empty words. This is who he's talking about. Those that try to be, pretend to be someone that they're not, and they try to give all these words to you, and we are fooled by it. And so when it comes to this walking in love, how can we be warned by all of this? The Apostle Paul says, listen, your lifestyle itself will reflect whether or not you have the love of the Lord in you. Literally, the entire first letter of the three epistles of John talk about that. Your love for others and your love for the Lord is evidence of your genuine Christianity, your genuine conversion. So as we close this morning, how can we walk in love? Well, first off, we have to set our entire life into the pinpoint of God's holiness. He is the standard in which we live our entire life after. As we continue to seek God and follow God, then we would love other people with Christ's sacrifices being our model in doing so. We love other people with a selfless type of love, putting their needs above our own, not preferring ourselves over them. And then third, we let it ratify our entire communication, change up our entire communication. We praise the Lord in all things rather than talking about things that are complaining and jesting and crude or immoral. We allow it to change our entire speech. And finally, our lifestyle will reflect whether or not we are genuinely and truly walking in love. When I was a youth pastor uh, many years ago, I had the privilege of growing up in a Christian home. And the church that I attended was a wonderful, wonderful church. It was a church that historically, nothing wrong with this, was quite a bit more conservative than probably most churches out there. And there's nothing wrong with that. And one of the things that the church really wanted us to, to do was push uh, for the ladies, and they weren't legalistic about it, but push for the ladies to wear uh, dresses and, and those kind of things to the services and, and most church functions. And so as a youth pastor, underneath the authority of my senior pastor, we encouraged that amongst our teenagers. We said, listen, if, if, you, if you're attending this activity, uh, please wear certain items and certain clothing. And I'm going to be honest with you, it may not have been something that they would wear at home. Okay? It is not my job to buck what the senior pastor had to say. I was going to follow him and support him. But the teenagers would get upset about that. And they would do certain things to try to get by with the bare minimum. And I said, listen, teenagers, I'm not concerned with you conforming to the rules. I understand. I got it. Some of you conform to it. I got it because you don't agree with it. I understand there are times in which you have to do things that you may not agree with. But don't just conform for the sake of conforming so you don't get in trouble. What the Lord is concerned about is the transformation of your heart. Because as you're transformed inside, what the Apostle Paul is talking about here, then you conforming to the rules that are the authority that are over you, that's going to come second nature. Because your heart is with the Lord, and that's exactly what the Apostle Paul is driving home here. Walking in love, your heart must first be in tune with the Lord, and walking with Him, Him is your standard of holiness, and then that's gonna, the love is going to come out in your life, in your conversations, and everything else. But your heart must be in it. Don't just conform to the Word of God, but be transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit.